the 7th in our study of the Feast of the Lord as given in Leviticus chapter 23. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries and CMI TV. As we begin our study of Israel's seventh appointment with God, the Feast of Tabernacles, I remember an event in my life which brought this feast to my mind. Many years ago, my family and I went camping in the Kettle Moraine Hills of Wisconsin. I remember walking at night on a hillside above our camp and seeing how our campfire lighted up the area around it. What a contrast that campfire was to the surrounding darkness. You see, the campfire radiated light and clearly showed me the way back to camp. During the days of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great candelabras of the temple court would have lighted the dark world around it with a far greater intensity. Lights are a significant feature of the Feast of Tabernacles. Visually, they reflect the culmination of Israel's spiritual and agricultural year, and they add merriment to the feast's grand and joyful rejoicing. Now the rabbis, speaking for many, say, he who has not seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles doesn't know what rejoicing means. Three times in the scriptures, God calls upon Israel to rejoice at this feast. Further, the Jewish prayer book calls this feast the season of our rejoicing, a rejoicing that seems very appropriate for the end of Israel's last pilgrimage feast of the year. Significantly, the feast occurs in the seventh month. Uh, that's the number seven signifying totality, and thus again we see the idea of a completion of the year's spiritual activities. We also note that this feast begins and ends with special Sabbaths that link rejoicing with worship. Interestingly, it also coincided with the final harvest in the land of Israel. Since the prime emphasis of this feast is the joy of worshiping before the Lord, according to the scriptures, we see that the feast is far more than a mere harvest celebration, as is often claimed by many. Even a cursory look at the Feast of Tabernacles reveals a complex event having several facets and, like each of the three pilgrimage feasts, combines both spiritual and agricultural aspects. You'll recall that first pilgrimage feast, Unleavened Bread, through its association with the start of the barley harvest, pictured the formation of God's theocracy in which he separated Israel from pagan Egypt. The second pilgrimage feast, Pentecost, associated with the start of the wheat harvest, which pictured national Judaism sealed by the covenant with God. Finally, this last pilgrimage feast, Tabernacles, through its connection with the completion of the final harvest of the year, pictures God's termination of the wilderness period and the nation's entrance into the promised land. Like the two previous feasts of the seventh month, that's the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, Tabernacle also has a future prophetic significance. Therefore, in order to understand the Feast of Tabernacles completely, 
we must examine each aspect of the feast and understand its completion to the entire picture. Our first step to this understanding is to read God's main instructions to Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles, found in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 34 to 40. Thus, in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at 30, verse 34, we read, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And on the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you. And ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It's a solemn assembly. And ye shall do no servile work therein. Also, in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. And on the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in a year. It shall be a statue forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Now, in addition to these instructions, over in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 to 15, it provides a look at this feast from a slightly different aspect, the agricultural aspect. Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days after that thou hast gathered in thy grain and thy wine. And thou shalt rejoice in the feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter, and thy manservant, thy maidservant, and the Levite, the stranger, that's Gentiles, and the fatherless, the widow, that are within thy gates. Seven days thou shalt keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord shall choose because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase and in all the works of thine hands. Therefore, thou shalt rejoice. Contemporary Jewish writers place great emphasis upon the agricultural aspect of the feast, calling it the Fall Harvest Festival, while playing down the spiritual aspect. Well, rather than focusing upon only one of the aspects, we shall see how this feast uses both aspects to complement God's teaching of the feast. I believe God does this by using the physical harvest of Deuteronomy 
to illustrate God's care and provision, while Leviticus illustrates the spiritual truth of God's faithfulness to provide and accomplish all that he has covenanted to Israel. Let us now see how God accomplishes these purposes as we study the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. God's use of the spiritual pilgrimages reaches its zenith with the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. As Jewish men from all over the world come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at this feast. Now, during New Testament times, God's appointment with Israel drew pilgrimages from Media, pilgrims from Arabia, Persia, India, Italy, Spain, modern Crimea, and even from the banks of the Danube. For many, the yearly pilgrimage to Holy Jerusalem became a sort of reenactment of the journey from pagan Egypt to the Promised Land. Now notice carefully, the participants in the Feast of Tabernacles included all Jewish people and all Gentiles who were residents of Jewish cities. Those declared in Deuteronomy 16 verse 11 where it says, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that are among you or dwelling with you, where the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. Like the Feast of Pentecost, Tabernacles provides these strangers, these Gentiles, living in God's cities, a regulation whose symbolism undoubtedly has significant in the feast prophetic aspect. Now, as these pilgrims arrived on the first day of the feast, they constructed a booth or a tabernacle as a temporary dwelling place to serve for lodgings during the feast. And they did this according to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, which declared, Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. That, or the reason for, your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. These booths served not only to remind the pilgrim of Israel's 40-year journey in the wilderness, with its accompanying lack of permanent dwellings, but also to emphasize the nature of Israel's seemingly precarious existence during those 40 years. No Jewish man who had experienced that could forget that God's provision of manna sustained the nation in the wilderness. So God uses this historical reminder from the past to cause the attendee to this feast to recall that he owed his existence and his obedience to his God. Further, God instructs Israel to observe a Sabbath on the first day of the feast and then note also a Sabbath at the end of the feast that is actually called, literally, a solemn assembly. While both the first and the last days are Sabbaths, verse 39, and call for a gathering of the nation to worship, only the last Sabbath is called a solemn assembly. This distinction is significant. In order to understand why, 
we must look closely at the meaning of this expression, solemn assembly, or more accurately translated, solemn close. Joel, in chapter 1 and verse 14, expands on its meaning, where he says that a solemn assembly, he states, hold the most solemn assembly you can, like the closing days in any of your feasts. Basically, solemn assembly, closing days. The Septuagint, now that's an ancient Greek translation, renders the same expression, exodion, exit, or finale. Therefore, this word solemn close or finale offers us the best meaning to this final Sabbath of the Feast of Tabernacles. Thus, the last Sabbath day of the Feast of Tabernacles is the finale of the feast, and since this is the last feast of the year, it is fittingly called the finale to the spiritual year. As we shall see in our final video in this feast series, this final Sabbath points us to God's ultimate purpose of a new heaven and new earth. When we combine the pictures of booths and a final solemn close or finale of the feast, we will see that they are offering us a better understanding of God's promised rest that was spoken of in the New Testament book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Please turn to there. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. For Israel, the entrance into the promised land, after the wilderness event, was a preview, though incomplete, of the coming day of true spiritual rest in God's kingdom for the people of God. Now, this is the only time in the Bible that God uses this unique word for rest. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this word as, and I quote, the blessed rest from toils and troubles looked for in the age to come by the true worshipers of God and true Christians, end quote. Since the writer of Hebrews does not offer a further explanation of this phrase rest, we can assume that the readers of his letter in A.D. 60 well understood his meaning as they thought back upon the exodus from Egypt, the 40-year wanderings that ended in the entrance into the Promised Land. This rest, now, is not merely a reference to a temporary physical rest from daily labors or a vague, undefined salvation rest but rather a total cessation or ceasing from life's struggles to the desired permanent time of no struggles, no labor, true peace, and fellowship with God himself for eternity. For Israel, again, the historical entrance into the Promised Land was a preview of that coming day of true spiritual rest in another day, as the writer of Hebrews says, in God's future kingdom. 
Thus, in this aspect of tabernacles, we have another zakar. <laughs> Do you remember that Hebrew word that I taught you? Zakar means a remembrance. A remembrance designed to stir a recollection of God's past dealings with Israel. Recall that to think on it. For remember, the biblical word remember means to recall, meditate upon it, and then always to act. Remember, think on, act. Zakar. Therefore, in observing this feast, one is to remember the temporary transient life of this world, pictured by the wilderness wanderings of Israel, and then to eagerly look forward to God's future rest in the millennium first, and then beyond into eternity. Now, I must add that this future rest is only available through a total dependence upon God for our future. How? By accepting his Son as our Savior and Lord. If one chooses instead to reject God, there's no promise of a future rest with him at the completion of our life here on the earth. Notice that. If you reject Jesus Christ, there's no scriptural promise of any rest for you in eternity. Thus this feast points to a fitting and joyous completion or finale of the journey of life only for those who are, as the writer says in scripture, the people of God. Since this world has not yet been transformed, it's well for us as believers to remember, according to Philippians 3, verse 20, that Paul says our citizenship right now is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the booths symbolize the past in Israel's historical journey. The present spiritual state of longing for rest and the future permanent dwelling with God promised in the future rest. Because rest has not come and because the writer of Hebrews speaks in the context of Abraham and the covenant, we can safely conclude that this feast is part of that prophetic future. Now, having examined the historical spiritual significance of the feast, and having seen that it must have a future significance as well, we must examine the agricultural side of the feast in order to complete the picture and to connect it to the two previous pilgrimage feasts. Any understanding of the Feast of Tabernacles must include an understanding of the agricultural aspect of the feast and that final harvest of the year. In this scripture, the harvest is often used to speak of judgment. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah 51.33, Hosea 6.11, Joel 3.13, and Revelation 14.15, again, the word harvest signifies a judgment. But it's also a figure of grace, found in Jeremiah 8.20, and a period of time for people to receive the gospel in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, 
and of course John 4 35 and 36 familiar passage which we read says see ye not there are yet four months and then come of the harvest behold I say unto you lift up your eyes look on the fields for they are white already to harvest I have to point this out this statement was made between Pentecost and tabernacles and John went on he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together because of the scriptures extensive use of harvest as a figure of spiritual and gathering we believe that the harvest aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles pictures an ongoing harvest of God's people culminating in the final harvest at the end of this age just prior to the new heavens and earth. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ stated that, I quote, the harvest is the end of the world. Now, more properly, the word should be age. So the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels in Matthew chapter 13, verse 39. Further, he says, those who offend or do iniquity are cast into a furnace of fire in Matthew 13, verse 41 to 42. So the harvest can be a separation of people. Those who know Christ as their Savior and are righteously declared by God and will spend eternity with him from those who offend or do iniquity who've rejected Jesus Christ and they instead will face the literal place called hell that was created, interestingly, for Satan and his angels. But God then will use it for those who also reject him. Now there's a second harvest element, if you will, in the harvest. It's called the sheaves. Eight times the word sheaves is used in the scriptures. Except for a reference in the book of Ruth and in Nehemiah, all the other references to the word sheaves refer to men involved in a figurative future harvest, a gathering of a harvest. Even the prophetic sheaves of Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37, verse 7, and the sheaves of the feast hymn that's recorded in Psalm 126, verse 6, are actually symbolic of a spiritual harvest of souls. Micah 4, verse 12, also refers to the harvest at the end of the age when God will harvest men. Similar examples are found in Psalm 129.7 and Amos 2.13. Because of the scripture's extensive use of harvest and sheaves as a figure of spiritual ingathering, we believe that the harvest aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles pictures an ongoing harvest of God's people culminating in the final harvest at the end of the age. After the final harvest is gathered in, then the eternal rest of the new heavens and new earth will begin for all those who know God and Jesus Christ as their Savior. Thus, the agricultural aspect of this feast serves in a supportive role, pointing to the main spiritual figure of eventual rest which will bring in that permanent dwelling instead of a tabernacle, a permanent dwelling for the people of God. 
symbolical of this final aspect is that at the end of the feasts, those who are observing the feast burn the booths and destroy them and go back to their permanent home. For their temporary dwelling will no longer be needed being replaced by a permanent eternal dwelling provided by God for our rest. Thus, Tabernacles pictures the millennium culminating in the final gathering of souls and the destruction of this earth by fire followed by the creation of the new heavens and earth. Thus, Hebrew scholar Victor Buxbosom summarizes the feast as, and I quote, a prophetic message of the Feast of Tabernacles is that there is shelter in the tabernacle of God under the wings of the Shekinah glory for the Jew first and also the Gentile. Thus, the two aspects of the Feast of Tabernacles, spiritual and agricultural, converge into this important doctrinal teaching concerning the future significance of the Feast of Tabernacles beginning with the start of the millennium and ending at the end of the millennium. Of necessity, we must verify that the scriptures really support such a future-looking millennial aspect for this feast. Furthermore, such an interpretation must harmonize with the structure and the symbolism developed in the other feasts. In our video on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day period of time starting and ending with Sabbath symbolized the process, if you'll recall, of sanctification in a believer's life. The Sabbath at each end symbolized the believer's necessary passivity in the positional, initial sanctification, and the final sanctification phases of the process, during which only God could act on us. Similarly, the five days between the two Sabbaths symbolize the active portion of a believer's life during which he grows and experiences progressive sanctification, a progressive setting apart from the world and to God during those five days. Since the Feast of Tabernacles shares a very similar structure with a beginning Sabbath, an ending Sabbath, five days in between, we should look for a similar pattern in its teaching, and we find one. A search of the scriptures performed in a literal, historic, and grammatical hermeneutic reveals a pattern that harmonizes with the previously developed pattern and also addresses the need for future fulfillment of the word rest. If the feasts truly picture events for the literal nation of Israel and its history, and no rest now exists for them, then there must yet be a future historical spiritual rest for the nation, for the nation of Israel. The thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, called the millennium, described in Revelation 20, verse 4, meets these conditions. For in Revelation 20, verse 4, we read, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands 
they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, when I read a thousand years, taking it in its normal sense, that's a thousand years. John also indicates that this will take place after the great tribulation of verse 14 at the great feast harvest. We read, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and notice palms in their hands, and cried, cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. That's Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. The Lamb is the one who shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, according to Revelation 7, verse 17. These allusions clearly point back to God's care during life in the wilderness and points forward to a promised messianic kingdom mentioned also in Zechariah 12 and 13. Premillennialists, that's me, believe that Jesus Christ will return to the earth following a seven-year period of unique tribulation upon the earth, Matthew 24, 21, Revelation 2, 23, and 7, 14. And after that unique tribulation, he will then return, Jesus Christ return to the earth to reign for the thousand years in a literal kingdom on earth. The millennium and its surrounding events fit the symbolism developed in the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast includes the future history as well as past, for it's a shadow of the coming day when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed as both the Lamb slain for his people and then as the King who shall rule from the throne on the earth in the millennium. The fact that the Jewish people of the Lord's Day clearly associated this feast with the Messiah conclusively connects this future Feast of Tabernacle to a future literal Israel and a future millennial kingdom. It is clear that the first Sabbath of the feast well portrays the rest from the earth, from war and turmoil that will follow after the tribulation. In other words, the start of the, the millennium will be a time of peace after that horrible period of seven years of tribulation. The intermediate five days of the feast symbolize the peace of the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. While there's still a yet further harvest, spiritual harvest, during those five days. Now, in our next video on the Jubilee, which, yes, is part of the feasts, we will see how the final or the finale of the Feast of Tabernacles will then lead into the new heavens and earth of eternity symbolized by that final Sabbath of the feast. I hope you will join me for that next video. Now, let us now look at some further links to the millennium. The Jewish people of New Testament times added two additional ceremonies to this feast beyond that which was specified by the Mosaic instructions. Those two additional ceremonies is the water pouring ceremony and the lighting ceremony. Remember I said lighting was so important.
We have to consider these additions in order to understand the full ramifications of the feast and how it points to the millennium specifically. Jesus Christ himself recognized and observed the two added elements without any criticism by him. So God must have allowed these two elements or observances to be brought into the feast. Indeed, he actually utilized them to make significant proclamations concerning himself as Messiah. Speaking in response to the closing words of Psalm 118, which was part of the halal that was recited on that seventh or last day of the Sabbath of the feast, Jesus proclaims a messianic claim of himself, proclaiming himself to be the salvation of Israel. For he says in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. During the illumination ceremony of the temple on the night before the morning of the evening, eighth day, Christ proclaimed, he shouted, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. I would carefully note that as you read the Gospel of John, it is filled every chapter almost with a reference to a feast, and several are references to this feast. Thus, in Jesus Christ's declaration, he proclaimed himself as sent from God. Further, he adds, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Jesus Christ's day, proclaiming himself as the Messiah, according to John 8, verse 56. Next, he states, as clear as can be, he was God. For he says in verse 58 of John 8, that he is the I am. That's the term meaning God, given way back to Moses at the burning bush. What do the people do? They respond, according to verse 59, because they well understood he was claiming to be the Messiah. Their response reflected their view of when the Messiah would come. You see, their expectations showed that they understood the Messiah King would be proclaimed one day at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the reasons that many speculated that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Think back just a little bit at the Transfiguration. Peter demonstrated the same association of the Messiah with the Feast of Tabernacles. He believed that the Messiah Jesus had come and was about to found the millennial kingdom. He believed the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 14 verse 16, speaking of tabernacles, was being fulfilled before his very eyes at the Mount of Transfiguration. For there we read in verse 16, It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep, what? The Feast of Tabernacles. This prophecy declared Israel's covenant kingdom and its king, the Messiah. Now, Peter had to respond. Remember, he always responds. To demonstrate his belief, Peter offers immediately, what does he do? 
to build three booths, booths of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's going to build one for the Lord Jesus. He's going to build one for Moses. And he's going to build one for Elijah. Those are the tabernacles, the booths, the sukkah of the feast. He believed it had come true because he saw the king in his glory. And he believed they were in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, on another occasion, the people of Israel responds in a very similar manner on what we call Palm Sunday. Here, too, the Lord presented himself to the nation of Israel as its king. The people responded, believing that the king had come to take his throne. Thus, what did they do? I don't know if you'll remember it, but go back and check on Leviticus and check it around. They were to have palms in their hands. And so on that Palm Sunday, we could almost call it Tabernacle Sunday, they took palms, an accompaniment common to the Feast of Tabernacles, part of it as they would wave palms during the ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles. And what did they do? They proclaimed the coming of the king, for they shouted, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke 19, verse 38. These two historical events, the Transfiguration and what we call Palm Sunday, these events show that the people, Peter and others, clearly linked the Feast of Tabernacles to the coming Messianic Kingdom, the Messiah, and the King of Israel. Bringing all these purposes, these pictures, these concepts together results in one clear teaching of the Feast of Tabernacles. The seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles represent the Millennial Kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ as its King and reigning upon the earth in fellowship with his people, Israel, the nation of Israel. The first Sabbath on the first day of the feast pictures the rest God's righteous people have coming out of the great tribulation and beginning the Millennial Kingdom. The righteous that will enter into the Millennial Kingdom will include both Jewish people and Gentiles. For we read, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, that's a descendant who is the Lord Jesus Christ, which shall stand for an ensign or a sign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. That's Isaiah 11, verse 10. Christ's reign will include rest also for the earth and its creatures, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10, as well as for mankind. In a direct allusion to the lighting ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles and the Lord's declaration on the seventh day of the feast in John chapter 7, Isaiah also wrote in chapter 9, verse 2, the people that walk in darkness have seen a great light they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. That's Jesus Christ. Now the days between the first and the last Sabbath represent the period of that thousand years when Israel shall enter into her kingdom, a time of great rejoicing. This period of time will include worship 
and glorifying, according to Leviticus 23, verse 40, before the Lord your God seven days of worship. During this period, additional people will be born in the millennium. They will need salvation. Thus, the harvest will continue through the Feast of Tabernacles to the final harvest at the end of the feast. Now, the last Sabbath, the final day of the feast, the finale of the feast, symbolizes the end of the harvest of souls from the garden to the end of the millennium and the beginning of the new age, the new heavens and the new earth. Only after this finale or final consummation and new beginning can the true believers of all ages find true and complete final rest from their labors. Although we believe that all the feasts will be observed during the millennium, only this Feast of Tabernacles carries with it a judicial ordinance. That's a law requiring attendance in Jerusalem each year by all the peoples of the earth. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19. Further, many events in the millennial kingdom parallel the events of the Feast of Tabernacles as it's pictured. All the peoples of the earth, not just Israelites, will be welcomed to the city of Jerusalem to worship the king. Men will travel from all points of the compass for this yearly observance. For on that day we read in Zechariah 14.4, the king will stand upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, just as the people anticipated in the time of Christ. As Jesus Christ taught at a past Feast of Tabernacles, healing will pour forth to the world to bring rest from illness and sufferings as the living water shall go out from Jerusalem, verse 8. Jerusalem shall be at peace, for verse 11 says, there shall be no more utter desolation, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. All will be in a state of holiness, for we read, Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Verse 21. As Jesus Christ taught at the lighting ceremony on the Feast Tabernacles, mentioned in John chapter 7, we read in verse Revelation 21-23, the city has no need of sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did illuminate it, and notice, the Lamb is the light thereof. This feast, with all its brilliance, from the candelabras, could only hint at the greatest light of all, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 prophesied of the Messiah and mentions that the government shall be upon his shoulder. No Messiah has yet come to rule over the kingdom of Israel. Thus the events mentioned in the passage are yet to come. And John is speaking of this coming day when he says, After this, I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palms, notice the material used to build the booths and wave, in their hands. 
and crowd, cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation, Hosanna to our God, who sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. So John in Revelation and Isaiah are both speaking of that coming day. For Isaiah further says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy with their heads. Joy! They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's Isaiah 35 verse 10. All of the elements mentioned in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, the joy, the water, the light, the peace, the healing, the permanence of the feast, will find fulfillment when the prophecies are fulfilled in the coming millennial kingdom. God called the tabernacle wilderness period the tent of appointment in Numbers 10.3. So too have each of the feasts been an appointment with God by the nation of Israel. At each, the nation has had a mountaintop experience with God in its history. Each feast has taught a significant doctrinal teaching of our God, with the last feast proving that God plans for Israel to have an earthly kingdom for a thousand years with the Lord Jesus Christ ruling the kingdom on the earth. This will answer the prayer given in Matthew of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. With the finale of tabernacles, our prophetic journey begun at the Passover comes to its end. These feasts, consummated by the Feast of Tabernacles, are the ultimate time for God's people to give him the honor that is his due, the honor owed the one who fulfilled his covenant promise and now reigns as King of Kings. No other event of human history can be pictured by anything approaching the Feast of Tabernacles. The day of temporary existence and habitation living in tabernacles ends with the when the millennial begins and we move on to our permanent dwelling with God at the end of the millennium. For you see, the millennium is really just the end of the beginning. Be sure to join me in our next video, The Jubilee, as we learn about the new heavens and earth and the life to come then. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll either see you here or in the air. Thank you.